0: Good morning. It's nice to see you all. Um, Thank you for the opportunity for me to join you in worship this morning. I get to serve a school called Westminster Seminary, California, where a number of your pastors graduated, and I want to bring greetings and thanks from our seminary for your prayers, for your support, for your encouragement, and also partnership in terms of training up future leaders as well. Let me also add My thanks in allowing your pastor, Dale, to join us a couple times a year to come and join us in Southern California for us to think about how the Lord is using the seminary and preparing many men and women for kingdom service. So we're delighted in partnering with you, and we're grateful for the ways that you support us as well. Well, this morning, we get to turn to Psalm 136. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Psalm 136. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 3. We're going to be also covering verse 26, but the whole psalm will be the topic of our conversation this morning. Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3 and verse 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. And we pick up in verse 26, where the psalmist then goes on to say, Give thanks to the God of heaven, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let's seek His help in seeking His wisdom from His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for inviting Your sons and daughters into Your home this morning. We're grateful for Your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who gives us life and purpose in all that we do. As we come before You, O Lord, be near us. Teach us directly from Your Word, that we may hear Your voice. We may understand with our minds all that You're trying to teach to us. But not only for us to comprehend intellectually, may we apply these things to our lives by the strengthening of Your Spirit. For we pray these things in the matchless name of Your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord amen. I see a lot of young friends here this morning. It's a lot of fun running into them and seeing their uh, bright and smiley faces. When you're you're a kid under 10 years old, every month counts. And so you can think in month terms where you have a four-year-old or at least a near five-year-old insisting that four and a half is exactly like a five-year-old. I'm almost five, she would insist. If you have teenage kids like we do, years is how they think about life. And when my son says, years ago you promised me, and then when you ask him how long ago that was, that was like two years ago. And for him, it was a lifetime ago that I had promised to do something. But when you get to be my age, you think in decades. You say things like, well, a couple decades ago. Twenty years ago, I heard about this. 30 years ago, I did this, which my kids love to hear about every single day. And we kept to think in decade terms in order to give some insight or experience shared with other people around us as well. Aging, in some ways, provides us with perspective, and lovers of history come to recognize that years give us insights as well as knowledge about the world around us. But if If our knowledge is not about months, years, or decades, but hundreds of years, or perhaps even thousands of years, we wonder what conclusion we would come to seeing the development of time and the experiences gained. And this morning, Psalm 136 does exactly that. The psalmist's concern is not about a year, not about a decade, not about century or centuries, but he's talking about millennia. Millennia from beginning of time, he gives us an overview of time for us to come to one particular conclusion that our God is good and that he is worthy of our thanks. Our God is good and he is worthy of our thanks. The psalmist sets out what he wants to teach us this morning in verse 1 in particular when he says, "Give thanks to the Lord for he is good." Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. And you may be asking the question, What about God makes Him good? And He starts to teach us about the goodness of God, not simply by showing us by experiences, but going over the history of humankind. And His history is not about American history. His history is not about the European history. His history is all humankind included from the beginning of time where he begins by telling us about God's creation. He says God made the heavens in verse 5, God made the earth in verse 6, God made great lights for 7, the sun and the moons and stars in verse 9. He recounts the Lord's salvation. It's not only that God created all things by power, He also saves us, and His salvation is seen. And recorded for us to understand and recognize. He begins with the Exodus account when God struck down the firstborn of Egypt in verse 10, brought Israel out in verse 11, divided the Red Sea in two in verse 12, made Israel pass through it in verse 13, and overthrew Pharaoh and his host in verse 14. But he recognizes that the Exodus account is not the only time where God saved his people. He turned away many kings, great kings, those powerful kings who dared to oppose God's people. As he says, the great kings in verse 17, the mighty kings in verse 18, the king of the Amorites in verse 19, and the king of Bashan in verse 20, who were no match for the God of gods in verse 2 and the Lord of lords in verse 3. He took their lands and gave them all to His people, the Israelites, we are told. He did this for us, the psalmist wants to say. As he points out in verse 23, He remembered us. God remembered us, not because we were numerous, not because we were powerful, not because we were obedient turning to the Lord. He remembered us, the psalmist says, in our lowly estate, in verse 23. What do we see when we reflect upon history and see what God has done throughout His time, throughout human history? We can only conclude in one sense, which is God is good, and His steadfast love for us endures forever. This is not because life has been easy. I think you and I know that quite well. We recognize that the psalmist is very earnest and honest about how life can be we recognize even in this writing, he's talking about the opposition of kings. He's talking about the powerful oppositions of many who oppose God throughout human history. And so the psalmist is aware of many of the travails and trials that you and I, even as people of God, go through. Scripture never promises that just because we believe in Jesus Christ, things will be easy. In fact, what it promises is that He will give us strength to endure in the midst of it. It almost assumes that here the trials will come our way. Here, just the last two years for us, we come to recognize many things that are around us that challenge us. We hear of wars and rumors of wars. We hear of illnesses and the pandemics, perhaps personal challenges that you and I have faced that help us to recognize that the world is not our home, and indeed, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Everyone tells me that there is a master story that everyone really thinks about as an account for their lives. That is, there is this one particular incident in most people's lives. As they look back, it divides one's history before and after. So my parents, who are from South Korea, Their dividing master story is about the Korean War in 1950 to 53. Everything happened before, everything happened after. So if you talk to many Korean Americans, they'll begin with the Korean War as a personal history. If you're asking me what my master story might be, it might be my immigration history. I came to the States when I was 10, and moving here from a foreign land, gives us a perspective of not only this country, but the country that the Lord oversees and the challenges of immigration involved. If you ask my kids, and I have two, Anna and Simeon, they're 18 and 16, I think they'll tell you it's the COVID time. My son, who's 16 now, in 2022, came up to us on March 13th. And I remember this date well, because March 13th is the day that we met together as senior staff. We said, we're going to close down the school for two weeks. Do you remember that? And then on the 14th, we met as board, where Ron Prince chairs the board. We made the decision to close down the school for a few weeks. My son remembers that well. And so on March 13th, he said in 2022, it's the two-year anniversary, he said. What do you remember about March 13th, I said? And he said, well, it was a rainy day. It was a bad day. What else do you remember about March 13th? He said, well, it was Friday the 13th. It was a bad day. Anything else you remember about March 13th? He said, well, it was the day they told us we're going to be home for two weeks, and they kept us at home for two months. It was a bad day. Do you remember anything else about March 13th? He said, no, no, no. It was just a bad day. Simeon, do you know that that's mom and dad's anniversary, I asked? (laughs) He had no idea. All he remembered was the fact that it was a bad day because that was the start of COVID shutdown, not only in our nation, but for his school as well. Even our kids recognize that there are times where things are difficult, beyond our control, and oftentimes feeling overwhelmed. The psalmist knew this as well. And in fact, if you look at 136, which seems so optimistic, it's followed exactly by 137. And there is an intramural debate taking place among interpreters as to whether these psalms are aligned together without any meaningful ways of putting them together, or did the psalmist actually put them next to one another because you're supposed to interpret them together in context with one another. I actually think the latter is true. And 137 represents one of the saddest psalms you'll read in the whole corpus because what happened there is the people of God are captured by Babylon. They're dragged through as captors. They were sitting down next to a river under a tree, and the Babylonians demand, sing a happy song about Zion. Just remember, they're sitting there as captors in a foreign land, They're simply asking them to sing a happy song about their homeland. And do you know what the the people of God said? They simply said, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How do we sing the Lord's happy song at a time when we're not happy? How do we sing the Lord's song in a difficult place where we recognize that the future is uncertain? How do we sing the Lord's song when we know that the opposition is great? Yet what surrounds 137, and you're going to see how good I am in counting, is 136 and Psalm 138. And you remember what 136 said because we read them. You know what 138 says? Simply this in verse 8, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Can you imagine this? 136 and 138, covering the ends of 137, the saddest psalm, simply repeats the same truth about God. Your steadfast love endures forever, it says. The love of the Lord envelops our sorrow, and it reminds us that there is no time when our Lord is not good, there is no time when the Lord does not remember, and there is no time where we are away from His careful and gracious hand upon us, where we are able to say God is good, and His steadfast love for us endures forever. His love has no ends. But what's intriguing about this psalm is the fact that as it reminds us of the steadfast love which makes our God good, This steadfast love, we are told, never quits, never ends. You might have noticed this structurally speaking because every verse ends the same way. It's almost like a refrain of a song. And it repeats the same thing 26 times. We are told, God's love has no end. My young friends here, do you know why the Bible repeats the same thing over and over again? It's not because it forgot that it said it, but it's reminding us of these things because you and I often forget, you and I often ignore, and you and I often do not believe. You come to recognize this when you have a teenager. What I mean by this is this, our home is not that big, but when we yell something at our children to do something, let's say to clean up the living space, or perhaps clean up the kitchen by doing the dishes, it's amazing how they don't hear anything. They tell you, I didn't hear anything when you told us. But when mom and dad, in the same space, whisper some criticism about them, very quietly, mindful of the fact that they might hear, they come running out, having heard everything, criticizing us for criticizing them, and defending them. It's amazing how they have this supersonic ears when they need to, and other times they ignore mom and dad and what they do. Maybe it's just my kids, but I dare say many teenagers might be the same. Where they choose to hear what they want to hear, choose to ignore what they don't want to hear, is often what we see. When Scripture repeats this, it's because God knows all of us are teenagers. Even when we hear, we don't hear. Even when we heard, we don't believe. Even when we hear repeated, we forget. And that's often our spiritual state before the Lord, and so he repeats it 26 times. And do you know what he repeats 26 times? Like an unending refrain, simply, "'Hear the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever.'" the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Friends, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Now, I recognize the word steadfast love here translated seems simple enough. The word behind it is something that you've heard before. The word is hesed, and we simply say the steadfast love. And you've heard about this, and you recognize how complicated that word might be, because depending on what translation you have opened at this time or what app you might have at the moment, English translations are very different. You hear things like his love, NIV, his loving kindness, NASB, his faithful love, New uh, Living Translation, his mercy, King James Version, his loyal love, is what one of the translations have. Now, you've come to recognize that this variety of translations indicate to us that translating the word chesed is somewhat difficult. Translation itself is somewhat difficult. Any of you who are bilingual here would recognize that oftentimes there is not one particular word that seems to do justice to the meaning of the word that you're trying to articulate in your target language. I realized that Pastor Dale's in uh, Latin America, and I remember one time teaching in Oaxaca where there was a translation taking place from English to Spanish, Spanish to the local language, Mihe. And as I'm speaking, the first translation and the second translation, the Mihe translator, went on and on and on. So long, I fell asleep waiting for me to come back and actually pick up the next point. In the midst of it, I actually asked the Spanish translator, to tell the other translator to speed things up and just translate what I'm trying to say. After we were done, the translator came and spoke to me, and he told me what I should have understood, which is simply, there are no words in Mihe to actually say that you said in English. Therefore, I have to explain the concept rather than just choosing the right word for it. There is no word, and there are many words like that. I was thinking about this yesterday in particular. I have this particular problem. I know that there was a big rivalry football game. One sport that I really love is college football, and I do follow it, and I come from the Pac-12, which is now Pac-2, and now the school that I support, UCLA, is part of Big Ten that doesn't know how to count. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) But it it doesn't seem like the counting is a priority uh, at this point in time. But yesterday, there was another game played by my own team, which they won. And then there is an opposition to UCLA's team, a rival that also played, and they lost. And I'm not sure what I was more happy about, that my team won or that the other team lost. And if I'm being very honest, and this is revealing my sinfulness, that the rival team lost makes me more happy. You know what we call that? Schadenfreude, right? In German, we say that way. If you translate what that word is, in English, in dictionary, it says this, enjoyment obtained from the troubles of others. Now, we can't say that in English very well. In fact, another translation simply has it, malicious pleasure. I like that quite a bit, actually, in terms of how it translates. But schadenfreude gets across what you're trying to say so well. The point that I'm trying to make is that oftentimes, when you're dealing with multiple languages, you can't have a direct translation that seems to work perfectly for what you're trying to say. Chesed is one of those words. Steadfast love is how we translate that in the English Standard uh, uh, Version, but you can see the variety of translations indicating to us it's not as clear, it's not as easy. It's a promissory word. It's a covenantal word. It talks about the favor of God who shows His favor and mercy to those with whom He has entered into a promised covenantal relationship It's enduring because God is God, and God is the God of His Word. So it's speaking of mercy, mercy bestowed upon people who deserve the opposite, living in sin, in rebellion, and in hostility toward God. It speaks of grace, grace poured out upon people who do not deserve the riches of His blessings, having lived for oneself and not worshiping the God of creation and salvation. It also speaks of love, not only mercy and grace, but love of God given to people who did not love, and who even after receiving love do not love that well, often professing one thing with their mouths, but actions betraying those alleged convictions, and perhaps you've witnessed that both inside and outside the church as well. Friends, when we talk about steadfast love as the psalmist does, it's covenant love fulfilled in his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and through his Son's name alone. Note with me not the mechanism of salvation, but the motivation of salvation that Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, and hear the echo of what God is trying to teach us in this steadfast love. Paul simply explains our salvation this way, but God being rich in mercy it's not enough that God is merciful. He wants us to understand it's beyond our words. Our God toward us in Christ Jesus is rich in His mercy. Why? Because of the great love with which He loved us. We might think it's enough to say He loved us, but He says, no, that's not enough, because human love where we say, I love you, and at the same moment we're able to say, I love my banana, seems to denigrate the meaning of love for ourselves and not understanding the kind of divine love God has for us in Christ Jesus. So he simply says, this great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace You have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show, listen to this, the immeasurable riches of His grace. He could have said, He had grace for you. But He says, that's not strong enough. He says, immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved. Immeasurable, riches, overflowing mercy, grace, and love, inexpressible fully in the words that we have, but he is trying to convey God's motivation to you in your salvation by simply saying his steadfast love for you. But the point that he wants to emphasize is not only the overflowing mercy, grace, and love, but that this is constant, that this love never ends, and this love for you, as one author said, is a furious love where it never quits, even when when you don't feel it. This is why Paul is able to say in Romans chapter 8, he simply says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ Jesus? And you know what the answer was? I think you know nothing will be able to separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord i recognize for many of us if you're like me sometimes you don't understand nor experience or feel or hear this love, despite the fact that you hear it, preach to you every single Sunday. Maybe I can explain it this way. Please take it as just a story, imperfect analogy. I told you we have two kids, Anna and Simeon. Anna, obviously the girl, was born first. And I'm not sure if it's a boy-girl thing. I'm not sure if it's a first or second child thing. But Anna could sit and focus for half an hour, even when she was young. She was smart, She was focused, and she was able to do her work on her own. Simeon was very different. He was very busy. He had places to go, things to do, things to touch, things to break, things to climb, always moving as he was growing up. Maybe you have kids like that as well. Now, that wasn't a problem, but one thing I didn't want to do with him is something that I saw other young couples do, which is they buy their kids a backpack with a string in the back. Have you seen these? This is a backpack that the kid wears, and the parent holds the string. You know why? So that the kid doesn't run away, and I felt like that's like raising a dog. Uh, That seems wrong to me is what I was thinking, and theoretically, I would never do that, I said to myself, and then we had our son. And there's this one occasion where our in-laws were kind enough to send us on a cruise. It's a boat. And if you know boats, you know what happens on the edges of boats. There's no place to go. You fall down into the water. I know I explained that only because I needed to remind myself, kid running around on a boat didn't seem like the best idea. And my son never stopped when he was about two. And so as we were getting ready for this trip, every night I had this dream of my son running toward the edge of the cruise boat and falling off. Have you had those kind of fearful dreams about your kids because you you do care for them? So my wife, Sharon, and I prayed and decided to do something. We bought a backpack, (laughs) and then we put it on the kid, and he loved it. I mean, it was just you you put your books in there, toys in there. He was perfectly fine. He was very cute about it. And there's this long string, and we held it, and as we are walking in, He'll look back, and he sees mom and dad, and he'll smile big. But there are times where people are crowding in. He looks back, and he can't see mom and dad. And then you can see the panic in his eyes. And then he starts looking for mom and dad, and when he found us, he would start smiling again. Back and forth he went, frown, smile, frown, smile, based upon whether he can see his mom or dad, because there's crowds of people in between. One thing that Simeon, our son, doesn't seem to understand as a child is that though he may not be able to see us because he's short and he's a child, there's never a moment when we let go of this rope. There was never a moment when the eyes of his parents were not upon him. There was never a moment when he was separated from us. You and I may suffer from spiritual amnesia and sometimes spiritual blindness, no longer able to hear and see our Lord, who is leading this church and leading us at times. But what the Lord is reminding us in his psalm is simply this, despite your shortcomings and mine, his steadfast love for you never ends and never quits. It endures forever. This is the reminder he gives to us, that no matter the circumstances of our lives, he simply wants to tell you, Because of His love for you in Christ Jesus, His steadfast love for you endures forever. When you recognize that, what do we do as believers who are reminded that our God's steadfast love for us endures forever? Well, He tells us in the verses that we read together. Verses 1, 2, and 3, and 26, Do you see the repetition here? And do you remember why we said the scripture repeats the same thing? Because we forget. Because we ignore. And do you know what he says? He simply says, Give thanks to the Lord. Verse 1. Give thanks to the God of gods. Verse 2. Verse 3. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Verse 26. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Do you know what's repeated here, friends? Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks is an incredible part of our worship, and not only that, a characteristic and virtue of our Christian life. One of the virtues of Christian life is that we give thanks not just when things are going well, but despite the tears on our faces. Friends, you you and I know this well. Even unbelievers give thanks to some God when things are going well, they're healthy, and they're succeeding in life, and their kids are doing well in school. What makes believers different than unbelievers is simply this, that despite the pain, despite the tears, despite the experiences that you and I go through, we give thanks in the midst of it, not because we're good people, not because we're positive people who say, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, not because people who tolerate and just simply endure. We give thanks because God is there with us, and His promises, His steadfast love for you, endures forever. It's because of His goodness to us, despite the challenges and the tears and the overwhelming flood of things, that we are able to turn to Him and worship, and give thanks. It's his constant love for us, displayed and done in Christ Jesus, that we are able to say, give thanks to the Lord, full stop. We recognize it's easier said than done, yet this is the only thing you and I could do as we stand before the Lord, recognizing and experiencing his love for you. This is why Apostle Paul reminds us, doesn't he, Chapter 5, verse 20 of Ephesians, give thanks always and for everything. I mean, that's pretty universal, isn't it? Give thanks always and for everything. In, verse two, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Colossians three seventeen says, and whatever you do, in word or deed do everything in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god the father through him 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 verses you know well but we often forget he says rejoice always pray without ceasing give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of god in christ jesus for you give thanks in all circumstances. I know this is not my characteristic. I was told that leadership is about disappointing people at a rate that they can withstand. And I've practiced that very well for the last seven years at the seminary. We recognize oftentimes the lack of joy in the world around us because this is not our home, and this is not the way it's supposed to be but we also realize God's promise to us. And perhaps there's no other way to explain this better than to end with the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 28. I know you are Westminster Standards people, but bear with me. I grew up CRC, and Heidelberg Catechism happens to be very near and dear to my heart. And frankly, I'm in West Michigan. And so Heidelberg Catechism Q&A 28 says this, How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence—providence simply means how God superintends, cares, and provides for all our needs—how do God's creation and providence help us? This is the answer provided by the catechism. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and father that no creature will separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they can neither move nor be moved. Listen to it again. We can be patient in adversity, past tense, right? Because it's about Lord being there with us. Thankful in prosperity. Why? Because God did it all. It's not us, after all. And when we think about the future, for the future, we can have good confidence, not in our own abilities or ability to be faithful, but we have confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature will separate us from His love, His steadfast love for us. Friends, God is good, and may the Lord bless you that you may know and experience and remember His steadfast love for you, demonstrated in Christ Jesus daily. And always. Let's thank the Lord together, shall we? Father, we confess to you we do not deserve to be loved the way you love us, or cared for the way you care for us, or even to be remembered. As the psalmist says, Who are we, O Lord, that you condescend to us and you remember us in your Son Christ Jesus? Thank you, O Lord, that your love is everlasting, never quits, and has no end. And we thank You for demonstrating that love for us in Your Son, Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, as He hangs upon that cross, the love that You have for us that will continue to guard and guide and provide for us for the rest of our lives. Remind us by Your Spirit, and remind us by the reading of Your Word that indeed You are so good to us and that Your steadfast love endures forever. And may we, both as Church at Harvest and as individual Christians, lift up our thanksgiving to you for your glory and for the church's sake. For we pray these things in the powerful and loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In response, shall we sing the Trinity Hymnal 32, Great is Thy Faithfulness? All the verses, let's rise together. Heaven has the first and the last word in worship as he seeks us to depart in his blessings. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.